Our scripture reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 28. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger constantly from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger uh, among false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. In verse 28, he concludes, Besides everything else, all of these external pressures, I face daily the pressure of my own concern for all of the churches. And what do we know about God's Word this morning? Amen. Please be seated. My wife, Tommy, and I are very grateful for Redeemer Presbyterian and the partnership of support and prayer that comes to us through your ministry to ours. We consider it to be a partnership together to advance the name of Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. I wanted to speak to you just for a few moments on the subject of fools for Christ for the nations. And I wanted to begin by simply maybe stating the obvious, and certainly it's obvious from the text, the world hates Jesus. It hates the gospel. And if you take the gospel into the world, even your own communities, they're going to hate you also. Right here in America, that is true. Our neighbors, they are not so concerned that we believe in Jesus. That's okay. What they don't like is that we are preaching a gospel that says Jesus only. Jesus is the way, the truth the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. You take that message to the communities and you're going to find yourself under fire even from your friends here in America. Fools for Jesus. That's what we want to be. And we say often in our ministry, we even have little, little uh, wristbands that say, Jesus is worth it. But what does that mean, Jesus is worth it? Well, it means that He's worth everything. 
He's worth every hardship and every suffering and every little persecution and big persecution that might come our way. Every death of your missionaries that occurs as they carry the gospel to the nations, Jesus is worth that. If that's what it takes, right? Jesus is worth that if that's what it takes in order to get His name established among the hard regions of the world. And you know what? From the text we read this morning, it is what it takes. The Gospel is not going to go easily and without opposition to the nations. Every step we take of advance for the name of Jesus, it's going to be opposed and sometimes stringently and maybe even violently opposed. And so I'm here with an agenda. I confess every time that I come here, this is my second time now. I hope there's more times to come in the future. But I do come with an agenda. And part of that agenda is not to just tell stories about historical exploits of the old-time missionaries, or even my own stories. But instead, I'm here to look for new fools. Not just talk about the old fools, but I'm praying, Lord, would you raise up from among us this morning? Last night, I was even praying again, looking over these notes. Lord, would you send your Spirit upon us today and work? And would you shake us And would you dislodge us from some of our commitments? And Lord, would you raise a few? Would you raise a few and compel them to go to the nations? Would you do that this morning? And that's what I'm praying. But when I say that I'm looking for fools, here's the kind of fool uh, that I'm looking for. Old story from 60 years ago. Some of you old-timers will remember this. It actually happened 18 months before I was born. 60 years ago. Five missionaries were slaughtered in the jungle of Ecuador. You know the story, Jim Elliott and those guys. They were repeatedly speared. They were beaten with clubs. They were hacked to death with machetes by the Alka Indians. You know the names, I'm sure, uh, of many of you would. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. I believe we should know the other three. Anybody know? Can somebody just yell at me? One of the other three of the missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. What was it? Yeah, it's been 60 years. Uh, Ed McCulley. Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming. Read the stories of these guys. It's an amazing story. And I want to use the Scripture and their story to draw out a couple of points for us about what it means to be a fool for Jesus Christ for the nations. In the 1950s, anthropologists considered the Alka Indians to be among the most violent cultures that they had ever heard about or studied about anywhere in the world. 
The Alcas were so treacherous that they were threatening their own existence as a people. They were killing themselves. They were killing each other. That's how they settled even the most minor disputes. They didn't talk it out, they duked it out. And they duked it out with spears and machetes. Sometimes killing even their own wives, their own children, their own husbands. So when the missionaries came onto the scene, it was no big deal for the Alka Indians to respond in the way that they did in killing the missionaries. Now, Ed McCulley was one of the five. And I just wanted to read to you a quote from a letter that he wrote to Jim Elliott a few years before they went to Ecuador. They were both students at Wheaton College when he wrote this. And in fact, the entire letter, I have included it in my book back at the back. I've got a few of them, more in the car. But the entire letter that he wrote to Jim Elliott, here's, here's what he said in that letter. It's become sort of an anthem for my own life. And in fact, it's where I got the title for Reckless Abandon. Ed McCulley wrote to Jim Elliott, he said, Jim, I have just one desire now, to live a life of reckless abandon for Christ. And I'm putting all of my strength and energy into it. Maybe, he says, maybe the Lord will send me someplace where the name of Christ is unknown. Three years later, in Ecuador, just days before that final flight into Alca territory where they were just slaughtered so horrifically, Ed McCulley wrote a little note in the side mark, the margin of one of his journals, and he said, I'm willing to give my life for a handful of Indians. And a few days later, he did it with his other four friends. The Ecuador Five were absolutely butchered on January 6, 1956. Two days later, because there was no internet in those days, it takes a little while for the news to get around, but two days after that, a rescue party went in and found their mutilated bodies floating in the Kure River. And when the news did get out, of course, the newspaper headlines from around the world screamed out, Tragedy in Ecuador! Five missionaries slaughtered. Five missionaries hacked to death. Five young lives wasted. And I just wonder, and, and this is a question that I have that will help us kind of talk through this in our minutes together, was the murder of these young men really a tragedy? Now we know it was tragic, right? Tragic, in that husbands were lost to their wives and fathers to their children. Tragic. But in the way of God's thinking, in a, a, a larger eternal perspective, was this murder a tragedy? 
And by definition, a tragedy is a disaster, a catastrophe. Is that what this slaughter was? Just think about that as we talk through some of this. If you know anything about the story as it has evolved over the six decades since the slaughter, even until now, you may have heard that, first of all, the wives of the slaughtered men went back into the Alka territory with their children. Let that soak in as well. Can you imagine doing that? They slaughter your husband, and now you're taking your little babies back in with you to live among the Alkas to continue the work. Well, it's a long and glorious story, but today, more than 85% of the Alka, their real name of their, their tribe is the Wadanis, something like 80-85% of the people have come to Christ. The most treacherous people that anthropologists had ever known about are mostly believers now, including the very ones who speared those five men. And so I would ask another question then, where is the tragedy in that from God's perspective? I wish that Jim Elliott could join me here on this platform today. I am confident if he was here, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and all of those guys, they would be laughing. They would be rejoicing. Jim Elliott would, would be talking about his martyrdom as one of the greatest things that ever happened to him because it answered his greatest prayers for the Alka that they would come to know Christ. He never saw it. But as we're going to see, it was through his death and the death of the others and the gospel message working together that brought the, the Wadanis or the Alkas to a faith in Jesus Christ. But something else happened as well. When the word got out around the world about the slaughter of these missionaries, leaders in the mission world, mission agencies, began to get worried. They were asking themselves, with this slaughter of these five that is so well publicized, it's already difficult to get missionaries to go to hard places. How are we ever going to get new missionaries to go to these kinds of dangerous places again? That was their concern. But the six decades since, and particularly the decade immediately following the slaughter, was absolutely obvious, or, or it was uh, opposite. It was opposite of what their concerns were. Not only were there, there not less applications for missions, there was an avalanche upon mission agencies all around the world with more inquiries and applications for mission than they'd ever had before. And all through the decades, I don't know how you, how you would come up with this statistic, it's probably uh, uh, a, a cautious number, but some are saying that something like more than 40,000 
uh, missionaries over the decades point back to the slaughter or the story of the slaughter of the Ecuador Five and they say, that's when God put the hook into me for mission. God used this incident to spawn a whole new generation of missionaries, tens of thousands of them. Not because of, but in spite of this incident, the Lord did it. And this is a primary point that I want to make, and and I'll just give you the, the phrases. Missionary martyrdom is not a setback for mission. It's not. Rather, it's an incentive for even more mission and more aggressive gospel advance. That's what we conclude from stories like Jim Elliot, but we also get it from Scripture. In the book of Acts, no time to go there, but you know the story, the timeline of the story. In Acts 7, it's mainly a sermon of Stephen, which at the end of his sermon, given this gospel to hostile people, including Saul, who was holding his jacket as the people began to stone him, he even prayed for his persecutors. He actually was praying for Saul. He was praying for a terrorist. You know, we do that in our ministry. We go in and out of Mexico and people say, what about the drug cartels? You don't go there, do you? Oh yes, we go. Not only do we go, but we pray, Lord, would you save some terrorists? And they say, well, what do you do? Well, you throw an extra few sandwiches and cold drinks into the cooler. And you don't avoid them. You target them with love and with the gospel. But what we see in Stephen when he was slaughtered, it says that on that very day, a massive persecution broke out against the church and people went everywhere carrying the gospel. They had been told to go, but they didn't really go too much. But when Stephen was slaughtered, persecution came upon the church like a sledgehammer and just egg-bottled them. It spit them out. It flung them out into from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Scripture, in the book of Acts, it strengthens this statement about martyrdom not being a setback, but rather it's an incentive to even more aggressive mission. Let me just say it again. This, this, if you go away with something, go away with this point. Missionary suffering, persecution, maybe martyrdom, all of that. It's a divine strategy. Divine strategy that God intentionally employs to advance the fame of His name to all nations, meaning all people groups throughout the earth. And I just believe that if we could, you know, in the Spirit, don't you wish we could do this sometimes, that we could look beyond just our five senses here? If we could just lift the curtain spiritually and look under the, look under the curtain and see what is God really doing in the Spirit when situations like this with the Ecuador Five occurs. If we could do that in mission. I believe that we would see 
God's meticulous providence, tucked away in the details of every single missionary martyrdom. I don't believe that Jesus ever wastes one of his martyrs or the blood of one of his martyrs. Church history, if you know anything about it, go way back. Strange fellow named Tertullian. You remember one of the things that he said? He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning, the blood of the martyrs is not spilled without a divine purpose and accomplishment. And so back to the Ecuador Five, when the morning newspapers screamed out tragedy in Ecuador, I believe that they were wrong. They were incorrect. It was not a disaster from God's perspective. Instead, it was the divine means for which God would bring about another great victory for Christ among a tribe that had been hostile towards God for centuries. And I believe it was a great mercy not only for the Alcas to hear the Gospel, it was a great mercy for the missionaries that God gave to them the privilege to go and to be the martyrs who would carry that message to the Alcas. That's what the Lord did through the death of the Ecuador Five. They were slaughtered. Their slaughter accomplished nothing for their salvation. The cross of Christ is what accomplishes salvation, right? Let's be clear about that. But the message, when it's coupled with missionaries who go, and like the Ecuador Five, they suffer and they are slaughtered, it is a way in which they are demonstrating the truth of the cross of Christ through their own five little human crosses. It was like a parable that the people could see that later they could understand when they heard the gospel and they heard about Christ and the slaughter of Christ. Then they would see what they did to these five. And somehow the Lord often through history and still today uses that to break and crush the hearts and turn people towards Christ. There's... An interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, End of the Spear, which is a movie that depicts this story. But there's a very moving part in there where Nate Saint, the pilot, is about ready to get into the, his little plane and fly to the Alcas. And his, his son, Steve Saint, who was just a child, he stopped his dad before he got into the airplane and he said, Dad, if the Alcas attack you, Will you protect yourself? Because they had firearms for hunting and other things. Will you protect yourself? Will you use your weapons if they attack you? And Nate Saint said to his son, and in the movie he leaned over and he said, No, Stevie, no, Stevie, we're not going to harm the Alcas. We're ready for heaven. They're not. And he got on that plane and went to Wadani territory 
and they were slaughtered. The rationale in that is we're ready for heaven. They're not. We don't go as Muslim radicals killing. We go as lambs dying and demonstrating the really important death of the one on the cross who accomplished salvation for all of His people down through the ages through that event. To me, that was no accident. It was a gospel-advancing incident for the glory of God to the very last detail. So now let me kind of pivot and we'll kind of move towards the end here. This topic of you as ascending church sending missionaries into dangerous places or, and I would say and, considering our own situation in this country with what is happening, is it possible that we ourselves are going to find ourselves in some very dangerous situations that we're going to have to make decisions about the gospel. Is it worth it? Or, when danger comes, will we just kind of turn and go along our merry way? So it's a tough topic, especially for us in the West. It's really difficult because we are sensitive. We, we don't like pain. We don't like hardship. We don't like suffering. We don't want to talk about martyrdom. Now, it's not a problem when we talk about it as history, but now when we bring it into our day, and it's a very real possibility for the missionaries that you send, and maybe even for your children and grandchildren as they grow up here in this country and culture, a very real possibility that this same kind of hardship is going to come to us. And we deal with our missionary trainees. We've got 10 right now and 20 more, I think, coming next year. And they've got little babies coming with them, you know, millennial families. And they're saying, we want to go into the Muslim world and carry the gospel. And so we're being honest with them and, and explaining to them what it's going to cost and what it may cost, what it may cost not only you but your children. And we see our trainees they, they, they're dealing and struggling with fear. Me too. When they say, I'm afraid, I say, me too. When I've gone into situations where machetes are flying over my head in New Guinea, I'm afraid too. You know what? Paul was afraid. The Apostle Paul was afraid. You know how I know? Because he wrote Ephesians. And at the end of Ephesians, when he's talking about all of the armor and, and, and prayer, he says, finally, brothers, pray for me. Pray for me that I might have the sufficient courage to preach the gospel as I ought. When do you pray for courage, brothers? When you're scared. And so we teach our trainees, of course you're scared. We're all scared. But we learn how through Scripture to become so immersed in the Gospel. Here's the way to deal with fear. I don't know any other way. Here's the way. 
Make Jesus so big in your life that the bigger He gets, the smaller the fears become. I don't know any other way. But this is practical theology. I actually teach our trainees. I I teach them this phrase, and I've taught it to myself. I say this. I make myself say this to myself when I'm going into dangerous situations. I'm saying, you can't scare me with heaven. I've actually said that in my preaching in dangerous situations. They're threatening our lives, and I say, you can't scare me with heaven. I mean, that's another way of saying what Paul said in Romans 12. He says, Paul said, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. Therefore, if I live or die, I'm the Lord's. You can't scare me with heaven. This is practical theology, right? I mean, we have it, we put it on our walls, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. We, we, it's, it's, but it's not a wall hanging. It's not a plaque. It's a biblical truth. And so here's the logical thinking that I, I give to our trainees. We like to think logically. Here's some biblical logic. If to live is Christ and to die is gain, that means dead is better. We've got to get that. It's in our theological statements, but I don't think it's in our, the way we daily think. If dead is better... That means that the worst thing that the enemy can do to me is kill me. That's the worst thing. I tell our missionaries, really, the the worst thing that can happen to you is you come back alive. That's the worst thing. Going and being slaughtered may be the best thing. Biblically speaking, right? We're pilgrims here. We're on our way to another land. But if that's true, that the, the, the worst thing they can do is kill us, but that results in the very best thing that could ever happen for us, namely that we would immediately be with Jesus forever, what's the problem? It's painfully practical, isn't it? It cuts right against the grain of Western culture, which says prolong life, except for abortion, Prolong life, no matter what. If pain comes, we're Americans. We invent stuff to get around that. And we have been seduced, I think, by the world's philosophies. Many of us believers as well, we've swallowed that false theology that says, God wants you always healthy, wealthy, and safe, even in mission. That's not true. That's for later. And so now today as we face 21st century challenges, as in all of the centuries before us, this is what the Lord is calling us to. Not just missionaries. If you're called to Christ, you're called to His mission. Either go and sending, giving, praying, however it is. But if you are called to Christ, if you belong to Christ, you, there's no such thing as an uncalled Christian to the mission. If you belong to Christ, you're in the mission. And if that's true, then we need to have a soldier's mentality. 
that if the missionaries who go need to do it all the way to the point of death, if need be, then those who send and pray and give also should have that same mentality. We're all soldiers in the battle. Is it dangerous? Yes! It was never meant to be safe. Jesus came as a lamb among wolves. Think of the picture. A lamb, baby sheep, among hungry wolves. He's describing a slaughter. And He was slaughtered. And then He turns to us and He says, Now I'm sending you, as the Father has sent Me, I'm sending you also as lambs among wolves. Of course it's dangerous. There's going to be casualties. Not maybe. I mean, there will be. But this is God's way. And I think it is a beautiful thing that the Lord allows us. Hear this. We don't have to do this. We get to do this. I want you to see the privilege in it. Because God is so great and His message is so awesome. And this plan of redemption is from eternity. And we get to be a part of it. And it's not going to fail. That was my message the last time I was here. The, 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 the mission of God will not fail. It's impossible for it to fail. But I don't want to be left out of it. He's going to do it, but I want to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of it as well. This is how the Lord works so often. You know, those final exhortation here, those 40,000 missionaries that were recruited over the decades after the slaughter of the Ecuador Five, and they scattered to the ends of the earth. Most of those missionaries were sent out in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Now we're into the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. Most of those original missionaries have died off or retired and now as a mission leader myself, I'm asking the question, so who's going to replace these old-time pioneer missionaries? Where are we going to get these new missionaries, these reckless, God-centered, martyr witnesses? Where will they come from? And I've been praying for a long time. And even in a congregation this size, Lord, would you shake a few of these replacement martyrs loose, even from Redeemer Presbyterian. Lord, would you fall, and would you compel some of us to go, to replace these old-timers, and work towards the, 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 the end result, which is going to be in the last day. And I'll even end with, with this verse. Jesus said, and listen to the certainty of this. This is not maybe or hope so. How many of you know Jesus doesn't hope anything? He doesn't hope. Our God acts. He accomplishes. And near the end of His life, this is what Jesus said. 24.14, Matthew. This is how it's all going to end. And this gospel of the kingdom... It will be preached. Will be preached. 
in all of the world as a testimony to all of the nations, meaning ethnicities, people groups, and then the end will come. We get to be a part of this. It's going to be through hardship and persecution and blood. And I'm saying to you that it's a privilege and that Jesus is worth it. Let's trust Him with that. It's fools for Jesus, for the nations, for the glory of God. Praise be to His name.